little bit, just so you know what's going on at the end of the book of Mark. Earliest manuscripts, which were handwritten, when they first began to circulate, did not have anything past verse 8. So those are the earliest manuscripts. And then later on, when more manuscripts were circulated, there was another 12 verses. Now, I believe that Mark meant to end on chapter, on verse 8. That's what I believe. But, you know, it's my opinion. Uh, and then I believe also that the other 12 verses were added by the early church. I, I, you know, I mean, we could speculate why they did that. Uh, and, and my speculation is simply just that they felt like that it kind of needed a, a tidier ending. They also thought that was an abrupt ending, Mark. Let's, let's change that a little bit. Now, here's the thing. Uh, we as the church have believed that those last 12 verses were still inspired by God. And there's a little bit of debate, but not much debate, because those last 12 verses actually just kind of have this summary statement about uh, the last part of Jesus' days. Okay, so we're going to look at that, uh, and, and let me just look at that and tell you what that says there. So verses uh, 9 through 12. I'm not going to read 9 through 12, but basically it's, you know, he tells the, the, the young man in the, in the tomb, tells them, go to Galilee. And so sure enough, they do. They go and they meet up with Jesus in Galilee. We see this in the last 12 verses. And then they also talk about, well, we're not really sure you are Jesus. And he convinces them he is. And so they believe him. He gives the great commissions, what we're known as this, this uh, command, this challenge to go and to spread my values, my kingdom to everyone all around the world. And then the book of Mark ends again. All right, and so it's it's still uh, interesting way. Okay, those nine verses nine through twenty is an interesting ending, but I, I want to go back to verse eight, where I believe Mark actually ended, and I want to come back to my comment. Interesting way to end a book, isn't it? Look at it again. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, why, why would Mark end this way? Why would he do something so puzzling to us, so anticlimactic? And I think the answer fits with everything that we've seen in the book of Mark. It's hard for me to stand still. I'm sorry, but I'm trying my best. I just want to move around a little bit here. Everything we've seen through the book of Mark, all along, all those people who were following him during this, they never really understood who Jesus was. They never did quite get it. We've, we've said that they had this expectation, right, of what Messiah would be like. And their expectation wasn't correct quite often. And so wouldn't it just be fitting? And this is why I think this. That Mark ended with the same idea that nothing is the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the kind of ending you're thinking about. Maybe, maybe the women themselves didn't know what to expect either. And so Mark kind of, I think, continues with this way of thinking. So, for example, the women did not expect him to be have risen, to have been risen from the dead, did they? I mean, they wouldn't have gone there with these ointments to anoint a dead body if they thought he was going to rise from the dead. The women did not expect some young man, angelic being of some sort, to be sitting there announcing this, right? And these women act like everyone else has throughout the whole gospel story of Mark, don't they? There's this certain sense of excitement and joy, but then there's this fear, and then there's 
What do we do now? What do we do with this information? Forcing them and us to ask the question, did we get it wrong? Did they get it wrong? Is this actually not what we thought would happen? And I think that is what Mark is trying to help us see, is that when the women went there, it's no different than the rest of the book of Mark. They didn't expect that, and it's not what they thought it would be like. And so I think it comes back to the question that they probably are going, well, who is this Jesus anyway? Did we get it wrong? And then the next question is, so what now? What are we supposed to do? I mean, how do we respond to this? And so here we are. We find ourselves at the end of the book of Mark. And it's the same question for us, isn't it? Who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? So in order to get to an answer to that, I want to go back in our text for today and look at verse 6 and let verse 6 kind of answer that for us today, all right? So this in verse 6 is where the young man says to the women, uh, he says to them, Do not be alarmed. This is the, the young man, the angel speaking. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. And he's not here. See the place where they laid him? Now, I realize that many of us have read this many times. In fact, you read it at least once a year around Easter time, right? But let's consider the implications of this statement, if it's true. Let's just consider what this means, if this is true. If we believe any part of the book of Mark here, especially this part or the Gospels, if we believe that, or maybe we don't fully believe it, but we're leaning in towards believing this, then we have to consider the implications of what this means. And if you're, if you're just somewhere even on that spectrum of believing, I think you have to consider what this means. And here's my argument, that Jesus, who walked the earth, Jesus, who predicted, among other things, his own death, Jesus predicted his own resurrection, and now he's pulled it off. He has risen. That's the implication. That's, that's what's going on here, right? And you have to see this, which means, which means, among other things, other things that he said were true. The things that he said were true, which means he's the savior of the world. That's who Jesus is. That's the answer to our question. And his response is that he invites us to follow him. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he invites us to follow him. Now I want you to listen because this part's really important. His invitation to follow him may not be what you expect. It may not be what I expect. Maybe our expectations are wrong, too. Maybe following Jesus is something different than we think it should be. Over and over again, in the book of Mark, and if you've been tracking with us, you've seen this, Mark says about Jesus, quotes Jesus, he says, to follow me means to be last. 
I did not come to be served, but to serve. If you want to follow me, this is Jesus again, if you want to follow me, you need to die to yourself. It means to forgive, not once or or just twice, but over and over again. It means to love when the person's not loving you back. It means to love when (laughs) that person actually hates you. You want to know why the message of Jesus has survived for 2,000 years? The reason it's lasted for so long is because his followers lived this kind of life. They weren't perfect, but they started living this kind of life where they served, where they forgave, where they rushed in and put their lives at risk to save and to love and to care for others. They gave up their own selves. They were difference makers. And for them and for us, this was an every single, this has to be an every single morning decision that when we wake up tomorrow, we say to God, thy will be done, not my will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That's an every single morning declaration. Not just a one time, not just a decision you make at one point in your life, but it's every single day because you're my Lord. You're my ruler now. I put you in charge. My eyes, my ears, my hands, my resources, my heart, all of me. My response to who Jesus is, I'm giving up on me and I'm following him. I literally follow Jesus. So the question for me, maybe the question for you, the question that sometimes keeps me up at night, is am I doing this? Are you doing this? Is, is this us? When someone would describe me or you, would they use those characteristics to describe us? Is that what they would say of us? Or do I fall? Or maybe we all fall in this category of, well, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Bless my family. Thank you for the food. Oh, and if there's a problem, I'll let you know. That's the question. Jesus isn't inviting us to a better us, a me 2.0. He's inviting us to an entirely different life, to be born again, to be something different. He says that if you save the seed, if you hoard these things that I give you, if you do not plant them in the ground, they will eventually rot. But whoever loses his or her life, for me, will ultimately save it. Jesus is inviting us to sow our lives, our time, our resources for something that's bigger than us, something that's other than us, something that's more than us, something that's significant, something that will make a difference and impact eternity. So let me put some flesh on this. Okay, these are big words. Let me put a little bit of flesh on this to kind of give you some examples or an example of what I mean. Uh, Maybe you remember hearing in the news, it's actually been in the news again lately for a different reason, of the Olympic U.S. uh, gymnastic doctor that abused women. Larry Nasser is his name. He's in prison now, will be in prison for the rest of his life. Rachel Denhollander was one of his victims. 
She was actually the first person to come forward and, and make public uh, and accuse him of the abuse that he actually was guilty of. And it ultimately revealed that up to maybe 200 girls and women over the course of years were abused by this doctor. In his final sentencing, the judge invited some of the victims to come and speak. And Rachel Denhollander was one of them. Rachel is a follower of Jesus. She gave a 40-minute speech. She was just one of many people who spoke that morning. A 40-minute speech. She told him in the end, and I listened to almost all of it, she said, I forgive you. But Larry, what's most important is that you get down on your knees and you beg God to forgive you. That's what's most important. And then she ended by saying, and I'll pray that you make that decision. Now, other people, I listened to much of the other commentary as well, they weren't espousing forgiveness. One of the victim's father actually jumped over a stand and tried to attack Larry Nasser and had to be restrained. You know, that's kind of what we expect, right? But because she had heard the words of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. And her response to who is Jesus is to follow him by a forgiving lifestyle. And she responded differently. And so Rachel's the kind of person that has changed the world. Now, I realize that most of us will never uh, testify in some grand court of public opinion and media a circus and get a chance to offer forgiveness to someone who's done wrong to us. Most of us won't get that. Rachel's story is large and visible, okay? But for us, it can come in other opportunities I mean, I'm thinking of myself a little bit here, but maybe to forgive the person who cut you off in traffic, right? Or maybe the coworker who's edged just out of an important opportunity. Maybe it's a parent who we long to receive love for and we never did. Maybe to prayerfully whisper the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. I want to close by introducing a term that many of you may have not ever heard before, but it kind of gets to the question of how we should respond to Jesus. So it's a new term for your theological uh, dictionary in your head, and this is where I want to end today, and here's the term. Cruciform. Cruciform. It literally means the shape of a cross. Now, it's technically used in architecture when mostly when they're going to build a church that's in the shape of a cross. That's kind of how it's often used. Uh, but the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in this way. He uses this term, or he actually doesn't use the word itself, but he uses this description to talk about Jesus, of having this cruciform life, a life that's shaped by the cross. And in Philippians 2, I'm not going to read it all, but he says that Jesus gives up his rights. He gave up his rights, that Jesus humbled himself, that Jesus submitted even to death on a cross. Even though he was in the form of God, he submitted himself to the form of the cross. And he uses the symbolism of the cross to describe those of us who follow Jesus. He says our lives should be in the shape of a cross, that we should create a community 
the Emmanuel Christian community in the cruciform way. A cruciform community, he says. To be people who empty themselves, who take on the form and the servanthood and the shape of the cross, who run to the back of the line, who give their lives to serve other people. People who forgive, like Rachel Denhollander, when forgiveness makes no sense. People who give our whole lives in response to Jesus. Cruciform. A cruciform community. I like that. At least I like the sound of it. It's hard to live that, isn't it? It's hard. But I believe this is what God is calling us to. And this is so different, isn't it, from what our culture preaches? I mean, I, I know it's, we call this the upside-down kingdom, right? Because our culture says fame, fortune, or at least power, or success in all types of forms are, are promoted. Uh, media networks are committed to this lifestyles of the rich and the famous. I um, in thinking about this. I was flipping through some channels one day, and I actually had never watched this show about the Kardashians. Has anybody here ever watched it? You don't have to admit it. Never mind. Um, <laughs> But I actually watched it. I've never seen it before. I thought, what's the big deal about this? And I watched as much as I could stomach, to be honest, which was about 10 minutes worth, which is probably nine and a half minutes too much. Um, but, you know, power can be fleeting. It can come and it can go. Circumstances can change. Fortunes can be lost overnight. Uh, and then what happens? What do, what do we do with those people then? What does our culture do then? Well, we make fun of them. We make documentaries about how they fail. I happened upon this this week, and I don't even know how I happened upon it, to be honest. I'm trying to remember. How did I read this? But Wall Street Journal publishes every year 50 of the least powerful people in the United States. And what they do is they take 50 people who used to be powerful and have fallen from glory, and they actually create an annual list of those 50 people. That's what we do with those people when they don't live up to the way we want them to. And so our world and our culture glorify the proud and the rich and the famous, and they mock them when they can't be that, that way anyway. But the cruciform life calls us to humility and to servanthood. You don't see any shows on TV about humble, servant-hearted people, not very often. Now, you may think this... Or you may not think, actually, this doesn't really relate to us. This isn't an ECC issue. None of us are tempted to be like the Kardashians. But if we're honest, we may not want their lives, but we want some form of their lives. It may not be on our list to be on TV, but there's something about some of this stuff, and it just, it's just hard for us. And it takes me back to my earlier statement. And this is where we're going to kind of wrap up here. That the cruciform life is a daily decision to wake up and say to the Lord, Thy will be done, not mine. On earth as it is in heaven. I have a quote from a book that my friend Don Orange recommended to me. And the guy's name is Tim Gombas. I've never heard of the guy before, but Don said, you got to read this book. The book's called Power and Weakness. And I want to end on this quote. And I'm going to put it up on the screen and let you marinate on it just a little bit. It says, when our lives take the shape of the cross, we are completely given to God 
and to others. And we do not control where we're going and how it will turn out. But we open up space for God to work in power. Who is Jesus? And how should we respond to him? He's the savior of the world. And he bids us, he invites us to come and to die so that we could truly live.